a lot of filmmakers I meet forget that marketing is part of the filmmaking process. You know, a lot of filmmakers, oh yeah, I made my film, but I'm not really good into that marketing. I made it, but I haven't released it yet. It's like, the whole idea of you making your movie is so that the world sees your movie. Hey, it's Andy here, and welcome to the Video Talks podcast, uh, where we talk to creators and commissioners and everyone in between about the business of video. If you're here for the first time, please subscribe, and we can keep you updated with new episodes. So let's get into this uh, week, which is an interview with Hazraf Haz Dalal, who is a sci-fi director. He moved from video games into VFX, and then ended up working on films like The Dark Knight. He then moved on to work on his own short films, originally animated, and then moved into live action. Obviously, he had a background in VFX, so that was handy. And he's since directed two feature films in the last few years. He's since gone on to direct a show for Disney, and he's most recently launched a pilot for an animated series called Battlesuit, which has been entirely created in Unreal Engine, which for those of you who don't know, is a gaming technology which uh, is quite revolutionary for filmmaking. So this interview is a little bit different. It's actually split into two episodes, uh, part one and part two, naturally, um, because there is just simply so much value and golden nuggets in there he shares numerous tips about how he's been able to think outside the box at every part of his journey to kind of further him on um, and loads of actionable tips that filmmakers could use in that sense, um, how to market your film, uh, how to reach out to sales companies to find out what might be popular in two years' time, for instance. As a few examples, Has talks about how he casts his actors, how uh, getting in bed with the wrong sales company can hurt your film, make or break your film, he says, why you should always have a plan and when it's okay to throw away that plan. Um, so there will be some annotations, some timing annotations in the notes uh, so that you can always jump to certain parts of the interview if need be, because obviously it's quite a long interview. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into the interview. Run VT. Hazraf Haz Dalal, the Haz is uh, also the name of his film company, began his career as a VFX compositor, moving to producing and supervising VFX teams. After creating a series of sci-fi-themed short films, in 2017 he directed his breakout sci-fi indie feature film, The Beyond, which premiered at number two in the iTunes chart before trending on Netflix and fully recouping its budget and ultimately becoming profitable. His second feature film, 2036 Origin Unknown, which starred Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica fame, and a limited theatrical release in the US before landing on Netflix. Haz was later hired to direct the pilot for a Disney action comedy miniseries, Fast Lane, of which he continued to direct three additional episodes. This led to Disney Channel original movies, 
hiring him to direct the Bridge special short film for the Descendants franchise, which was rated as the highest viewed short form content on the channel, which was quite an achievement. Later in 2019, he directed the ending segment for the sci-fi anthology Portals, released by Screen Media. He's currently developing genre TV, feature and animation projects. Uh, Okay, so Haz, brilliant to see you. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've kind of I've given our audience a little bit of background, a bit of an overview of your of what you've been up to. Could you delve a bit deeper and give us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm like really excited to be here. I mean, you've done a great intro already, so um, I try and do the things that you haven't covered. But basically, I started off my career working in video games. So this is like back in 98, 99, kind of shows my age. Um, But um, I was doing game cinematics for game consoles like PlayStation 1, Dreamcast, predominantly racing games. So we would create all these what you called um, cutscenes in the game. So before the game starts, you get to watch the story, uh, story bits. So I was animating cameras, I was telling stories. And I got to a point where I realized I'm making mini movies and video games. Why don't I just go and work in the film industry where they actually do it properly? And um, I remember putting my show roll together. I had these really cool, like, you know, CG scenes from, from cutscenes from games that I've spent years working on and send it to all the major visual effects places like NPC, Framestore, and so on, and got rejected. Like, just everyone in the studios rejected me. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, these are cool CG scenes. Like, you know, what the hell? And I remember having a call with, I think, one of the lead um, art directors uh, over at MPC. And he was like saying, look, basically, visual effects is marrying CGI with um, with live action. If you could demonstrate you could do a fraction of that, then you can come in and would give you a job. And they gave me a job eventually. And I started right at the bottom. So I started as a rotoscope artist. So I worked on a film called 10,000 BC and Sweeney Todd and um, I think one of the early Harry Potter films. And I was just from, for like, I don't know, for like a year, all I was doing was just cutting out the actors so that, they can, so that the compositors can replace you know, the backgrounds and doing things like tracking and stable, all the grunt work, basically, you would have in visual effects. I was started off doing that. And it's, and it's probably the best thing I did because, you know, like, you learn all the hardship of visual effects by doing roto. Like you also learn the hardship of when something isn't filmed properly. Like, you know, if they if they put a green if they lit a green screen bad, you're the poor sucker that's gonna be in the basement of NPC cutting out <laughs> those characters. So all that became education later on for me. And then um after a year or so I became a compositor where I was given shots to do. Um and then my break in visual effects, I would say became when I moved into something called post-viz. So you have pre-viz, which is creating um, an animated version of your storyboard. Then you have post-viz, where you take those pre-viz and you lay them on top of the footage to give the director an idea of what it was. And the film I got to work on was The Dark Knight. So that was a big break for me um, over at Pinewood for like, I don't know, seven months, um, just doing post-viz and this incredible movie. But working in post-viz straight pre-viz, that essentially became my film school because when you're doing previs, you're essentially you're animating cameras, you're telling the story. You need to understand cinematography well. You need to understand storytelling, composition, editing, pacing, and you're listening to like the the supervisors talk about the shots. 
And it's not a technical thing. It really is a creative thing. So I essentially was learning how to make movies doing previs and post-vis. This is back in, God, 2007, 2008. Um, and then I rose up to becoming a visual effects. So you can imagine after working on Dark Knight, the amount of offers you get for work, or you never need to send your CV out again. Like, yeah, you're hired. Um, so I ended up becoming a visual effects supervisor where I worked on a show uh, called America, the Story of Us and Planet Dinosaur and ended up being nominated for several uh, visual effects society awards. So all of that really helped me kind of like get a good understanding of um, working on various size shows and films and TV shows, but especially for TV, you know, understanding how to work with showrunners and executives as a visual effects supervisor, which essentially that job is really figuring out how to achieve something on a very tight schedule, often tight budget, and then end up working at a place like Prime Focus, which is a big, massive VFX company. And then um, eventually I started saying, hey, I want to start making short films. Like, you know, um, I've been helping out other directors make their film and I've learned so much. I want to do this now. So I, I made my first um, animated short called FUBAR, which you generously screened at Canada Van, I remember. <laughs> Uh, which was great. And, but I was, again, that was something I wanted to do that I knew I could do myself. So being a composite, I would take all these images of like cats and my miniature models and composite and make a big action animated film. Now, naively, I thought that would get me a job at Pixar or directing an animated film or directing films. And it didn't get me that. But what it did get me was an audience. I started building my audience online people start to realize, oh, that's the guy who did that crazy cats and dog action movie. Um, but also your, the visual effects industry played a big part in marketing it because at the time I was using a piece of software called Nuke, which is now the industry standard. But back then, Nuke was kind of like this new 2.5D composite where you can do semi-3D sort of shots in there. And so I got a lot of support from the foundry. I got a lot of support from my industry peers. So that kind of elevated me as a filmmaker, even though I wasn't going the traditional route of film school and film journalist press. I was getting all of that PR via technology and software. And then Adobe came on and it helped sponsor my following films like Project Kronos and Sync and Iris. Now, Project Kronos was the short film that that was essentially my breakout short film, because what that was, it was a fake documentary about sending human consciousness in a ball out into space. And then 50 years or 100 years later, we get technology that is able to transcode memories into pictures. And we get a signal back from that probe. And because it's consciousness, we realize we've made first contact on a consciousness level. Now, it's incredibly nerdy. I'm a nerd. I read Wired, New Scientist for Breakfast. That's me, okay? So you can imagine how techy this was. But also... Bear in mind, I was a visual effects supervisor at the time working on documentary films, you know, so for show, for, for networks like BBC and Discovery. So I was surrounded by documentary filmmakers and documentary editorial, yet I love science fiction. So I kind of put the two together. And again, I made it pretty much myself, you know, all on my laptop in Adobe Premiere and After Effects, you know, had some money saved up to hire actors and music. And um, that film was a breakout. It went viral. You know, um, it got Vimeo staff pick. Variety covered it, io9 covered it. I mean, every site was covered it. I was getting phone calls from agents, managers in LA. And I was like, whoa, I was expecting to do at least three more live action films before I even, you know, start talking to agents and managers, you know. And um, it was really a whirlwind. And I think a lot of it was because it was right timing. There was a bubble where the science fiction movies, you know, I think like at the time, Gravity trailer came out and that that was huge. And there was a big 
hunger in Hollywood for science fiction. And then there's me, a visual effects artist turned filmmaker that's doing this stuff. And the other thing also is um, people thought the short film was real because it had that documentary vibe. And I was using NASA footage, stock footage from NASA. And it had that very District 9 vibe to it. Um, it blew up on the internet. So studios love that. Executives love that. And they were really like, you know, looking to sign someone that had that background as well as being able to tell those stories. So I signed up a manager called Scott Glasgow back then. And um, I was instantly hired to write the feature film version. And I'd never written a feature script, by the way. So they're like, so can you can you write in direct? I'm like, well, and my manager's like, yeah, you can write in direct. And I had to learn the hard way. So I bought this book called Save the Cat, which if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're but for anyone else that isn't familiar, it's the most amazing book because it's so simple, but most executives refer to that book. You know, it's got all the free act structure, you incite an incident, all of that stuff. And I learned the hard way. You know, um, a company called Benderspink, which no longer exists now, but they, um, they optioned the rights to the script. And then they brought another writer on. And I was working hand in hand with that writer. And that is when I realized the kind of filmmaker I am was that I, I'm not a writer, but I write out necessity in order to get a project greenlit. But then my biggest jam is when I get to work closely with another writer, because writing is a, it's a craft on its own. And it takes years or decades to really hone that craft. And so for me to be able to, as a director, work with a writer and bounce a script backwards and forwards, that I love that collaborative process. And and what I realized was that's pretty much how studios work in the US. The Hollywood studios is there's a lot of writers involved. It's a lot of backwards and forwards with various writers. Um, the film never got made because it was a budgeted for like 30 million. Who the hell is going to give a first time filmmaker 30 million? let alone now. So um, I think it was like around 2015, I was supervising a TV show called Poldark. Um, yeah, not science fiction, but um, a lot of visual effects, you'd be surprised because it's period drama, right? Um, and I remember just telling myself, like, I'm hired by 20th Century Fox to write an underwater project. I'm writing a project with Paramount. My CV looks pretty good as a filmmaker, but guess what? I'm not behind the camera making a movie. I'm still working in visual effects as a VFX supervisor to keep myself going, which I loved. But I want to be making films, man. You know, I don't want to keep making shorts. So I got to a point where I was speaking to my agents and managers. And they're like, look, you just can't, we're going to be frank with you. You just kind of need to go off and make a gorilla, a gorilla movie so that you're no longer the first time director stigma. And that's the problem I had was I had these short films. I had studios that were fans of my work. I was getting hired to, to write and develop projects, but it was only it was going for what you call development hell, where it's just getting round and round and round. And some people make a living off that, which is great. Was me, I just wanted to make stuff, you know? So when it came down to, they call it, in Hollywood, they call it a turnaround, where they re-option a script. Um, I decided not to re-option my script. I was like to the guys, look, we're not going to make this movie, are we? We're just going to keep redeveloping it. And I swear there's like 20 versions of this script now. Um, I'm like, look, I'm going to take the rights back. I'm not going to make the movie that you guys obviously pay me to make because it's a really expensive movie. I'm going to go back to making what the short film was very popular for, which is the fake documentary. And at the time, there was a company called Blumhouse that were doing a lot of these found footage movies, which were incredibly popular and very lucrative. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make it into sort of like a found footage faux documentary. And they were great. They're like, you know, off you go. You know, you have our blessing. You know, good luck with it. It's great. And um, so I had a little money saved up for um, for a house 
So you can imagine where this is going to go, right? <laughs> so I had all the money set up for a house, and I was going to my partner, and she was like, "Look, just make the movie. You know, you just you may as well make the movie, but just just don't f it up, right?" So when your partner tells you that, you just don't f it up. And um, because I was financing my first feature myself, because no one's going to finance me unless you finance yourself, and that was essentially what it boiled down to: make or break, right? So use your own finance. And um, the best decision was the fact that I didn't waste a penny of that. I spent a lot of time, you know, prepping the movie. But most importantly, I rang up all the distribution companies I knew and studio executives I'd made friends with over the years of development and saying, listen, I'm going to make my first movie. They're like, hey, well done, Has. I'm like, yeah, but I'm financing. They're like, oh, okay. So I'm like, I just need to be brutal. I need brutal, honest feedback and honest opinion here. What is the market looking like in two years time? What are you guys looking for in science fiction content? And literally, they gave me this checklist. Like, we love science fiction films about space exploration. We love robots. We love AI. We kind of like the grounded nature. We love character-driven films. Not so much, so much spectacle, but do put spectacle. Um, but for the love of God, don't do an alien invasion movie. Doesn't matter how talented you are, you'll never end up making like a Star Wars on Independence Day. So it, it gave me these really strict rules. So I kind of put them on my wall. And as I was writing, I was kind of checking them off in a way while still retaining. So it's kind of like, I wouldn't say it's paint by numbers, but it kind of is because you're kind of making a movie that has to be commercially successful, not only to recoup your money back, but also to be seen as a successful movie these days, it really isn't about the story, but it really is about the box office hits and the sales. Yeah, let's be frank, okay? So um, I had all of that education prep, and I went off and made the movie, and I spent all of 2016, 2000, yeah, 2016 making the movie. We locked it 2017, and then by that time, my uh, we released, there was a trailer that came out. So there's a website called Looper, so Looper is this amazing website that plays all this entertainment news. And they do this thing like top 10 films to look out for in 2018. The f and number one was Ready Player One for Spielberg. And number two was this independent science fiction called The Beyond by Haas Delors. You may not have heard of him, but you've seen his short film that went viral. And number three was Maze Runner. Um, and I'm like, what just happened? And this wasn't an article. This was a video thing that they did. So it wasn't like a typo someone wrote, okay? This is recorded. So you can imagine the trailer got tons of traction. And remember, this is a film with no big name cast. Pretty much a bunch of talented actors that have done TV, that have done films, but there wasn't super high profile. So they had no sales value, okay? And this was a genre movie. So the whole film is, the sale of the movie is based on the fact that it's a science fiction film, right? It's based on its concept, which is quite good for this kind of genre. Horrors and sci-fi can kind of get away with that. Um, and yeah, and then my second movie got greenlit right away. Now, my second movie, which was Origin Unknown, was originally supposed to be my first movie. So remember I said, yeah, I did my, I did Project Kronos, I got all this traction. And one of the questions your managers and studios would ask you is, what else have you got? You know, what else is in that treasure trove chest of yours? And like, you're like, yeah, I've got tons of ideas. I've got this movie about, you know, AI. I've got this other movie about a cube that appears on Mars. And then this AI is trying to figure it out. It's like 2001 Space Odyssey meets, you know, gravity or something. And they're like, we love that. So I remember we were developing that. And again, even though it was, it was budgeted for like a million, which is not huge in the grand scheme of things, I could never get that movie greenlit. But the minute the Beyond trailer came out, the movie got greenlit. And nothing had changed. It's just now I'm a credible filmmaker. 
that's all it was. Um, so I went into prep for that while I was still in post-production and beyond, which is why when you look at the IMDb or the set or my film releases, you'll see I had two movies came out in 2018. So January, the beyond came out. And in July, 2018, Origin Unknown came out. And I was like, what the hell has you been busy? I'm like, well, it's actually a different kind of story. It's like they were both kind of made close to each other. And that's essentially it. Um, and the Beyond became a hit because of the amount of press I had on it. Yeah, I, you know, that's one of the tips I'll tell any filmmaker really is like follow up on your press, right? So there was a lot of press from the short film. So when the feature came out, Everyone, I had an audience base already. People were like, oh, that's the guy who did those short films. This is his first feature. We're going to watch it. But also the trailer was cut in a way, and I edited my own trailer. The trailer was edited in a way that felt like a bigger movie, yet still retaining the core values of true independent science fiction filmmaking, where it's about the characters and the concept. And also at the time, there was a big, you know, there was a film that, there was a few films that came out, but I think Interstellar, you know, had obviously came out and Arrival had just been released. So there was a hunger for these cerebral type science fiction films where they're about smart choices as opposed, as opposed to big action spectacle. So that's why The Beyond did really well. It's number two in the chart next to Blade Runner 2049. Um, in Q2, the second quarter of the sales. So, you know, when your movie comes, when you release a movie, it comes out every quarter, you get something called a sales report, okay? And the sales report are numbers from the distribution company, in our case, Gravitas Ventures, and they'll tell you how much money it's made, how much commission they take from sales, and how much is left over in the pot for you as a filmmaker. And by Q2, I'd recoup my entire budget, thank God, because it was my own money. Um, but also, like in Q3, we were in profit. And that was very important. Now, bear in mind, I did, this is rewind a little bit because I did say that I financed it, but really what happened was I actually ended up financing, say, 80% of the film. So I was already in production when a friend of mine introduced me to a investor who I had no idea was an investor, by the way. He was from the States and he saw what I was doing. He's like, dude, did you just like finance your entire film? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you got balls. And I'm like, yeah, well, I've kind of got to do it because no one else is taking the risk on me. I'm going to take a risk on myself. And he looked at the edit and it was very unfinished, but he kind of saw the potential in this executive, a guy called Craig Cohen, who used to be the vice president of Cirque du Soleil and was a top level Coca-Cola executive, which again, I didn't know until afterwards. And he was like, well, how much money do you need to finish the film? And me being this independent spirit, I'm like, no, I don't need your money. I'm going to finish it off myself, guerrilla style. Uh, I've got this. But he was like, no, but sure, I get it. And I respect that. But um, if you did have money, what would you put it in? And I really, it really made me think. I'm like, well, it probably, I'd probably put the money in something that I couldn't do. Because I was doing editing myself. A lot of the visual effects I was doing myself before I brought other people on. So I can't do audio. I can't do music. I can't do sound design. And I respect that so much. And I believe audio is should be on exactly the same level not even not even a millimeter down in the chart it should be exactly the same level because without the sound the visuals is lame there's no life to the visuals and i grew up loving sound design and music just never knew how to do it myself so he goes okay well you know here's a check for 30 grand i'm like what because yeah here's 30 grand it's up to you if you cash it or not <laughs> i cashed it right away obviously and um 
I use that money to bring on bigger visual effects companies to help render stuff out. But also I hired some of the best sound designers I knew and the best, some of the best music composers on it, which is why the sound gets a lot of praise on this film because it had the same amount of love. So obviously that he's a happy investor, you know, in the mid 2018 towards end of 2018, a happy investor because not only did he recoup his 30 grand back, he made a massive premium on it and he's still, we're still getting royalties today. So um, that was a thing that, I'm quite proud of because I made it for a shoestring budget, yet we're able to still make a living off an independent movie, which is very cool. Yeah. And yeah. So do you have any specific questions on the pilot <laughs> or should I just keep going? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I just I think I just had to remember that I could um make a noise. Uh that that is amazing. I mean, literally you've covered <laughs> so much that I was going to ask you anyway. I just, I did want to say, so Project Kronos was, you said that it, you know, it achieved a, a good kind of virality online, right? Sure. Um, do you have any sort of marketing tips for filmmakers out there? Absolutely. First off, the big thing is a lot of filmmakers I meet forget that marketing is part of the filmmaking process. You know, a lot of filmmakers, oh yeah, I made my film, but I'm not really good into that marketing. I made it, but I haven't released it yet. It's like, the whole idea of you making your movie is so that the world sees your movie. And if the world sees your movie, you're going to continue making films, okay? Now, marketing, you don't need to hire a PR agency to do your marketing. All the marketing I did was myself. And it's so simple. You just go to a website. Like, for example, Project Kronos, I reached out to Wired. I reached out to Geek Tyrant. And they say, listen, I've just done this short film. Love for you to check it out. Check out the trailer first. Never send them the whole short film because that's a lot of commitment for someone to do. Send them a trailer, like a 30-second to a 60-second trailer to tease and say, this will be a great fit as content for your website. And I'm willing to write an article for you about the making of. And as we all know, you know, websites need content. Publications need content. So for you to say, I'll write an article, in return, you get to you know showcase my film. It's a win-win situation. So that's the number one. You've got to put in the work. Don't expect to send your film and then people are going to go and write articles for you unless you're like a big hotshot director. It's a different thing. So, you know, like for Origin Unknown, obviously I did, there wasn't so much of that because obviously I'd established myself and it was a bigger film. But I still find when you reach out to podcast or reach out to filmmaking website, like for the Beyond, it was huge because there was a massive story about an independent filmmaker using black magic cameras to make an entire feature film. And at that point, there had never been a feature film made using the Blackmagic cameras. So for Blackmagic, that was a huge PR spin, which I tapped onto. And then there was Adobe, because I use Adobe Stock. So Adobe Stock came in and said, hey, you know, this is a feature film using a lot of Adobe Stock. So it really is, don't, don't blast your film out to, by doing a big scattergun approach. That will never work. Be specific on who you target. It's better to target three to four really specific website that have a huge following of the subject of your film as opposed to targeting a thousand websites because you're not going to get that same traction really great advice <laughs> you're just a powerhouse of advice <laughs> so how much should filmmakers invest in their in their sound design and music massively massively you know for me if you're going to spend 500 quid on cinematography camera lenses and crew you should spend that same amount on sound and music. You know, like over the years, I've seen how the music composers and sound designers, 
they get the short straw of the budget all the time. They're like, oh, we've only got this amount left now for sound, but it's going to sound epic. It's going to sound amazing. And then I want to hear the nuances of all these individual bullet hits. So for me, I, I bring the sound designers earlier on. Even sometimes during script stage, I always have a music composer in mind. I, you know, I, during the shoot, I go and speak to the sound designers and the music composers, especially the sound team, and say, listen, we're going to shoot very gorilla. What should we look at for sound? Because here's the thing. A lot of money spent in sound, not necessarily doing the actual fun stuff. A lot of it is cleaning up bad sound. And you don't want to spend your limited amount of money or whatever your budget is on cleaning up sound. You want to have the creative thing. So one of the things we did on Beyond, we hired Pindrop, who were amazing because they worked on other projects of mine. And with, with the Beyond, what we did was I was shooting in so many different locations, very documentary-like. So we had someone from the sound team at Pindrop come over and advise us, was supervising on set for us. That goes a long way, knowing that the sound designer is not going to be cursing you while they're in the sound mix and that they can spend time heightening your vision, bringing your vision to screen. So I would say invest just as much as you do with cameras and cinematography in sound. Get them involved as early as you can. Don't leave it as a last thing because it will, it, it will bite you in the ass later. Yeah, that's something that I've heard um, quite a few filmmakers talk about is um, involving sound from an early perspective. So getting back to features, you had uh, a really good experience with The Beyond and the reception of that. How did the next film, 2036, Origin Unknown, compare to The Beyond? Origin Unknown was was a project that was optioned by a production company called Park Gang Entertainment. Two lovely producers who loved my project but just couldn't get it off the ground until the Beyond came out. And um, and yeah, it became pretty fast how Origin Unknown unfolded, by the way. It was like the minute the trailer came out, finances were, yeah, we're financing this. We cast, we looked around for a few casting and we ended up with, with this amazing Katie Sackhoff who just fell in love the project. And we spent, I think, about three to four months on Skype, just me and her, reshaping that project because you know original known could be compared to a movie like moon you know the duncan jones movie right because it's kind of like a one-person show and so someone like katie sackoff who's in the movie like 99.1 percent of the time yeah it's kind of all rests on her shoulder so i i kind of developed a style of working with her where it's very intimate it's very one-on-one every day we'll prep and we treat it like a theater show and the other thing we did was because we shot the entire movie in 12 days that's right, folks. We shot Origin Unknown in 12 days. And what we did was, I didn't want any green screen. I know, coming from visual effects, you say, what? I wanted to build a full 360 set because being a visual effector, I knew the way I wanted to shoot this was, it's a very intimate movie. So I didn't want to choreograph cameras. I wanted to feel quite rough, kind of like my style in the beyond. But also, the actor, the way I work with actors, I have a very improv, improv style to work with my actors where we do the script and then we're like, just, just throw one like this or try one like that. It's very back and forth. You know, I'm never behind a monitor. I'm always next to the camera and the actor's here. It's kind of the way I work. So I just knew green screen would be a freaking nightmare for that. Um, so we built the entire set. We had, originally we had big digital screens playing back graphics. And then we realized the budget couldn't afford big LED screens. So we ended up using Translite, which is uh, the production designer, John Bunker, came up with this idea of using Translite. So I'll create all my graphics. So all the graphics you see in Origin, all the screen graphics, that was done way ahead of time. I did all of that in pre-production. And then we just had them playing back. 
as single screens with a light behind it, which meant that the lighting would affect the actor's face. So we didn't need to do any of that in visual effects. Um, and then, you know, that film got a limited theatrical release in the mid-July. And that was my first cinema release. So I was kind of proud. Um, it was limited. Limited means that only a, a, a few states with a few cinemas would play it. Now, with cinema releases, for a film like this, it's not really designed to, like, make money. If anything, that cinema release was more about promoting the movie so it can be up for awards and so on. Um, but it did really well on VOD. And uh, and it recently it was on Netflix in the UK. I think last month it was number two trended movie on Netflix. The uh, the actress Katie Sackhoff, I think her yeah. she is great, isn't she? Her performance is yeah. really it. She's she's a very well versed actress, I guess. Was yeah, she part of my yeah. kind of questioning. I just uh, <laughs> was going to be obviously why was it documentary the, the beyond you know you've covered that sure. completely obviously uh <laughs> but the comparison between quite a big cast in the beyond to going to one person i, I yeah. mean obviously that that's something that's that's very that stands out a lot so yeah. uh yeah what was the decision how did you make the decision um about casting i mean was ca- casting for the beyond was it was it a hard job because you had a lot of Pass right yeah cast casting for the beyond was uh, that was a production on its own casting for that we really wanted to find actors that were obviously good but also felt genuinely human which meant they didn't overact and we knew we just couldn't have an open casting where we get a room and get people coming it'd just be a nightmare so we use spotlights which is the, the online casting thing and we put up we just put a we put a casting call out and we got so many people. And one of the things I asked was for people to record their self tapes or self videos or on their phone or whatever. And obviously we get, we got, I think we got like 300 submissions. It was insane. It, it, there was a job just to go through those submissions. Um, amazing talent as well. But the ones that stood out for us were the ones that actually went, uh, went and did the extra mile. Like we had the, the guy who plays um, the oldest guy, Jacob, um, you know, the, he he's been in Pirates of the Caribbean. He's been in a few Hollywood movies, but he he sent an, he sent a self tape, and he set his whole room up like like um like an astrophysicist. So he had the poster of a wormhole. He had he had he scripted dialogue that you know, we didn't give him anything. Just and he really sold himself. And there's another guy who plays um, the Asian doctor, and um, he yeah, went ahead and put on a doctor's coat. He put on a, a glass perspex screen and started doing all the minority report in his tape. And I'm like, these guys are like really into it. And those are the ones I wanted to tap into was that if they've got so much passion for the material. For Origin Unknown, it wasn't, we, would, we wasn't really, predominantly we wasn't really casting like, oh, we need to find the right person that has the right look and stuff. Really, yeah, it had to be someone that had a profile because it's a movie. Once you get past that slightly 1 million sort of, budget you need to have an actress or an actor that carries sales value their name needs to help sell the movie as well but for me it was very important to find the right person as well as someone that had a sales value you know that was the producers dealing with that and we went through various um and katie sackhoff's agent one day rang and said listen um the script landed on on her lap when she was doing an episode of longville so longville is this um serial cop drama that's i think it's only available in the states and she was on that and she read it and she really liked it and i remember um, her agent saying but her feedback is 
she doesn't know what exactly she's reading because it's so, so deep with technical and, and philosophy, but she knows there's something really cool about it. So, yeah, is it possible to send any material that the director's done before? And obviously, I was in the middle of post-production, okay? So I was in the middle of post-production of The Beyond, and the producer going, well, do you have anything you could show? I'm like, oh, oh, uh, uh. okay. So I put together this, um, a scene. I think it was a, a, a quite an emotional scene. I knew Katie wasn't really interested in a big spectacle to show I can do visual effects because she had seen that. She wanted to really know if this director can work with actors and tell a good story and really appreciate good narrative with performance and character stuff. So I cut this really emotional scene. Um, it's a scene in the Beyond base about giving anything away where the, the main astronaut has to like make the ultimate sacrifice to, to save the greater good. So I kind of put that moment in there and she got back and said, listen, I want to chat to the director, but I don't want to talk to the producers. I just want to work. With, I want to have a conversation with the director and I'll know within 20 minutes if this is going to be the right project. Because what she didn't want was she didn't want producers giving her the big sell. Right. And she, she's a well-respected actress. For her, she had to connect. And it's a low budget movie. And she's getting paid way more on the TV shows. So she wanted to really find a way to connect with the material. So we got on a Skype call. 20 minutes ended up becoming two hours. And then every few days we're talking. And we just end up rewriting the script to a certain point to make it fit with her. And one day what I decided to do was I decided to play this scenario. I'm like, hey, listen, I know today we're supposed to be talking about page 20 of the script. How about we just take a break on that? And I'm going to pretend to be a journalist. I want to do a day in the life of your character. And this is on Skype. Kind of the same way I did the Beyond, right? Because I'm using it for my development process. And she was coming up to amazing stuff. She was like, well, I hate my job because there's no one in this building. It's all AI. I mean, what the hell do AI know about gut feelings? You know, they'll never overtake. And she was coming up with stuff that was not even in the script. I'm like, this stuff is gold. This we couldn't we couldn't write this even if we wanted to. So we end up doing a lot of rewrite process, and that film became pretty much a film centered around Katie Sackhoff, and that was a big buzz for me to be able to collaborate with an actor to really shape a movie of them. That be, was why the performance is so phenomenal in that film because yeah, she turned up on a date not figuring out what to say, but just pushing what she had to say. Even the conversation we had on set was about how can we elevate this further? How can we push the emotional moments here? As opposed to saying, I don't get this line. So for me, you know, it's something I took away going forward on all the projects I do now is I spend a lot of time with actors, you know, and coming from a visual effects background, it means that I'm not just sitting there, you know, providing a bunch of, um, of verbal notes, but I'm showing images. I'm showing this is what it's going to look like. This is what I'm thinking. So the actors have a communication tool that I'm able to use to elevate the conversation. So yeah, the so casting was was a process for both the films. <laughs> yeah. But as a portfolio piece for her, for Katie, I guess if if she's invested in the content, she's actually kind of essentially co-writing scenes with you and collaboration that's not something that you always get uh, as an actor do you exactly and also when you're talking to like a fairly high profile actress like katie you know you there's got to be an incentive for her yeah she's not going to be retiring on the budget of this movie okay i mean she got paid but it wasn't like you know it wasn't like a huge like tv network deal so a lot of the decisions of her doing the movie is and it comes down with other actors as well is because they love the project 
you know, when you're pitching a project to an actor, you really have to give them something that they haven't done before. You know, for both like Jane Perry and, and Nigel and the Beyond, they got to really play on improv a lot and really shape the character. I give a lot of freedom to actors to shape that character. Because for me, if you're hiring an actor, you're not really hiring to do to do what you tell them to do. You're, you're, you're hiring because they bring something to the table. And that's how I like to look at actors. I look at actors as collaborators. I hate the word, let's bring the talent on set. I hate that word because they're collaborators. They're not just a piece of talent, right? I always say you've got to give something to the actors, an, an incentive. And incentive is giving them a bit of creative control, getting them involved in every stage. It goes a long way. You'll be surprised. It actually goes a long way. It really comes across. And and yeah, thanks for that uh, brilliant insight. I wanted to just go back before your VFX career and sure. just tap into, you know, what got you interested maybe when in as a child. And it, I mean, you learn, you learn everything from your kind of working career. It sounds, it sounds like, but um, just if you can take us back just before, sure. you know, from, from <laughs> your earliest kind of inspiration. Sure. No, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I've always been fascinated by films. Um, you know, I grew up in the VHS era, you know, where, you know, where even just looking at the cover of a VHS gets you excited. Like, oh my God, I really want to watch this. Um, and I remember, I think it was around the age of, I don't know, I think like 11 or 12. Um, like my parents, so my parents were from an island called Mauritius. And so they'll go there quite like every few years. And I remember like, it was just me and my dad, because my, my mum and my two brothers were the ones that ended up going to Mauritius and I stayed back with my dad and my, and I really wanted to go, but my dad like, was like, look, your mom probably disagree with this, but like you can watch any movie you want today. Okay. And I think back then in the UK, there was, um, there was channel four on ITV, ITV back then. And ITV were doing these things like 10 30 PM, an action movie from James Cameron or, or Ridley Scott movie. And they were like 10 30, like, you know, that was past the watershed sort of thing. Right. And I remember like saying, okay, I'm going to go to bed like in the afternoon. And then in, in the evening, me and my dad would just watch this movie. And he bought this VHS tape from the library because we, we would rent films from the library and the video store. And because uh, back then, the libraries, you can rent all these, like they had a whole section of this VHS tape. And he bought, he was a big fan of Harrison Ford. Um, so he didn't really like rent Blade Runner because it was like a sci-fi. He just was oh, a big fan of Harrison Ford. And he put on this tape and I watched it. And my mind just, I was just like, just blew my mind. I'm like, this is like, I've never seen this before. You know, this is like, you know, the beautiful cityscape, the deep, weird, it was weird for me back then, like replicants, like what the hell are replicants? Um, but it just blew my mind because I think I was, lo- I, was, I was looking into a world that I'd never seen before. And I remember telling my dad, like, I don't know what's involved in, in doing this kind of thing, but I want a job doing that kind of thing. And my dad's like, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> sure. Um, and then I watched a movie called Flight and the Navigator. I started watching films like Close Encounter of the Third Kind, all that within like the span of that whole year, right? And I realized that, you know, after watching those films, I'll go up in my room and I'll start sketching, you know, start just, and I'm a really bad drawer, but I'll like make paper mache models of the, you know, the xenomorph and just make little things. I was very creative that way, kind of making my own paper, my own paper world of the film. And I realized that, I don't know what it was, but I just, I was just fascinated world building. And I didn't know it was called world building back then, but today I realized it's world building that I was into as opposed to just so much about 
making the film. And I just became a sci-fi nut. You know, I started reading about, you know, at the age of like 15, you know, most of my friends were, were like reading like, you know, sort of like Beano comic books or or playing the latest video games. And I was into video games as well. But you know, I was reading like, you know, like science fiction novels for Isaac Asimov. I was like, you know, just nerding out. Anything that I could soak in about technology and science fiction, I was down for it, you know. And then I remember when I got into like college, uh, we yeah, we had to pick our A-levels. And I remember I picked like fine art, design and tech. And um, I think there was another like graphic design class or something I picked. It was all very arty. And my parents were, because being the firstborn child, my and my parents were like, well, I don't think you're going to get a job with all of those free A-levels. Um, you might want to pick something that is a bit more job worthy. And obviously back then you, you're, you're like, I hate you, mom. I want to do graphic design. But now you're like, yeah, you understood what I did. You understand what I did it. But um, I had to find a way to compromise. So what I did was, I'm like, okay, okay. I'll do, I'll do um, computer science, which involved a lot of programming. I'll do, I'll do, um, what was it? Design and tech. And I think I ended up doing sort of like first level maps or something. Um, and what they didn't realize was I was actually making a video game in my year levels. And then, so when I went to university, I did a course called media communication. And I remember at university, it was a four year course at city university um, three years at uni, one year sandwich, they call it a sandwich course. Right. And all of the people were getting jobs at Bloomberg ITV and, you know, creating databases and, you know, that kind of, or doing actual journalism. Whereas I wanted to work in an actual video games company and the university just had no access to video games company. They're like, well, why don't you go work for Oracle or IBM? And, you know, you can build a database there. I'm like, I don't want to freaking build databases. I want to be making video games. I want to be making Zelda or something. Um, so I then reached out to a bunch of video games company myself. And that was kind of like my first foray of reaching out to people and just taking that step. And I remember reading a magazine called Edge Magazine, which still goes on today. Um, and at the back of Edge Magazine, there's always these adverts, you know, Sony PlayStation is looking for this artist. And I'll apply to all of them, looking for work experience. And one company came back called Davis Studios based in Camden. And um, they were making motocross rally games. And they're like, look, we're looking for, you can come and do work experience for two weeks. You know, it's unpaid, obviously, but you get your lunch paid for. And you can sit next to the art director. And I was there early in the morning. I was the first one in, last one out, right? And I fell in love with it because I was like, obviously doing all the grunt work, making coffee, but also at, you know, three days out of that five days, I would actually do some artwork with the art director. And then eventually they started getting me to build stuff. And I remember like, after my work experience, they're like, okay, well, you know, your work experience is over. You've done really well. Um, come back to us in your when you finish your degree. And I'm like, I don't think I want to finish my degree. I'm like, this is dope. I mean, I don't have to go to uni. I'm in the games industry. And um, and the boss of the company, a guy called Daniel Bobroff, who, you know, who was the owner of the company, was that he gave me this really good advice that kind of stuck with me even right through to the, like today. And he's like, look, I'm going to give you a job right now. Because you're obviously integral to the games team. And you know, we don't have to train anyone else because you've got all the training. So you can start like today. But let me give this advice. It's better if you go back to uni and do finish that last year because you don't want to get in the habit of starting something and not finishing something. It's better to finish something and delay delay what you would love to do. And I took that to heart. And it was the best decision I made because you know I finished it. I got a degree out of it. 
And while I was at, oh, by the way, he gave me a part-time work as well. So I quit my job at Tesco's and ended up working there and finished the degree. But it was such a good advice because now I can see from my perspective when I'm hiring artists and if an artist goes, oh yeah, I did this thing, then I quit and went to this other job because this other job um, gave me much more money, but him, I don't care because I didn't need to finish this. I can see what that would look like. So I think that was the best advice someone ever given me. It's like, you start something, you better damn finish it. And I think that's the philosophy I took when making the beyond. Like, there was times where I'm like, should I just, this is, this is insane. This is not going to work. But I'm like, you know what? The train's moving already. You may as well see, you may as well go through the whole journey. And you know, whether you fail, it doesn't matter as long as you've finished it. And I think that was an important thing. And that's an advice I'll give everyone. Like, there's going to be times you, you're going to want to give up. Of course. You know, if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? But if you can finish something, that's an achievement on its own, the fact that you finished something. I think that's really valuable for a lot of people. Um, I wanted to actually dig into um, that a little bit and, and ask you if you have any kind of things that you do, any sort of habits that you that you practice which helps with that you know like the the kind of there are points when you're in the middle of a project where the the self-doubt hits you and um and finishing you know procrastinating is one thing oh Um, yeah (laughs) if you've started something that's brilliant but then yeah seeing it through and and maintaining that momentum is hard too so are there things that you do during um a production or even like development of a product project absolutely it's a really good question and um i think for me is i always make it part of my day to look for sources of inspiration so like you know i'll go on youtube look at the latest trailers you know but don't just look at movie trailers look at video game trailers look at music videos you know for me as much the more material i soak in the more inspired i become um but also like yeah as you as you kind of like develop in the film industry you start to like find fellow filmmaking peers so you know sometimes i'll just jump on the phone and say and have a conversation and say oh man like dude i'm like i'm in this really crazy part of the film and i don't know what i'm doing and sometimes it's just nice to just talk to someone about it that's in the industry but if you don't have that you know if you, you know like i procrastinate all the time i mean there's moments where i'm like oh my god like i spent all day just thinking about this one scene and sometimes you can get too much inspiration. It becomes too crazy. So the other thing I do also, I try to make it a habit is I try to get away from the computer screen, get away from everything. Now I'm not saying turn your phone off and stuff, but what I tend to do is, you know, I've been doing this for a while now is I go out for a run. Now, not only do I you stay fit, which is very, very useful, but also to clear your head and to come back with a fresh perspective. That helps a lot. Uh, it's better to do that, to, to take half an hour out, grab some fresh air. Well, today you need to wear a mask, obviously. And then um, and then come back and see things in a fresh light. And if you're still stuck, then that's when you should just make a phone call to someone or or maybe just take a break from it. You know, the other thing I always do also to stay, to stay motivated and to stay energetic and excited about a project is I have more than one project going on, okay? Which is why I never get bored. You know, like I... Right now, I've got like, I'm directing an animated feature. I'm currently in early prep on that. I'm directing a game trailer and I'm in development on a bunch of stuff. Now, that seems like a lot. And you're thinking, oh my God, you crazy workaholic. But no, actually no, because it means that I feel like my my mind is constantly spinning. But also, 
I don't get bored on any of the projects. Like if, if I'm getting bored on the animated feature prep, I can quickly jump onto the game trailer prep. Everything feels special. Everything feels fresh. Whereas if I was just doing the one project, I think it will become very quickly, it will become stale. And I feel like, oh, it's just a job now. So I'm not saying everyone should do this, but this is what works for me. I find having more than one project keeps the excitement, it keeps the spark, you know, keeps spark going. And I think that's important, especially when, when the competition is very high. You know, every day I'm looking at new movie trailers coming out or I'm reading an announcement in a trade press. I'm like, oh God, you got to keep catching up. You know, you don't just make that one film and you've made it. Every film is a new beast. <laughs> You're learning, some, every project you learn something new. What was cool last year isn't cool today. So you constantly have to push yourself. And if you're in the mindset of like knowing that every film you do, you have to keep pushing yourself, then you will probably procrastinate less, I think. Uh, no, I agree. The the whole, the gaining a fresh perspective running, I do the same thing. It's, I, I would advise cool. everybody to get some exercise for sure. Totally. Um, just on in the inspiration thing, just quickly, how do you avoid going down rabbit holes if you're looking for inspiration? You can't. And I think that's the joy of research. You end up going through that rabbit hole. Um, it's, it's, it is quite hard. Sometimes what I tend to do is I tend to do my research like a couple of hours before I have to do like an important meeting. So that because I know that important meeting, I can't change that meeting or it's set. So I know I've only got two hours and I've got to get my research. So, yeah, it kind of st stops me from like going down that rabbit hole. Oh, this is cool. Ooh, what's this? And you just end up going. But was if you say, oh, I've got the whole day to research, you're most likely going to go into that rabbit hole. So set yourself a strict guideline of research time. You'll find you'll get more out of that than spending more hours, I think. That's good. Yeah. So, so if you have a hard deadline, like a meeting, that's like, that's something you can't you're not going to change. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first part of the interview with Haz. Um, episode six, I think it is. Um, so episode seven is the part two uh, of the interview where he digs down a bit more into kind of tips for filmmakers. And he also talks about his uh, his recent animation, which is called Battlesuit. So there's loads more brilliant uh, content in the next episode. So I would say, you know, maybe take a breather, come back to it. Um, if you're running, if you're at home, uh, then carry on. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. That would be great and that would ensure that more episodes come into your feed. And check out the show notes on videotalks.co, of course, where all the links and um, all the kind of all the stuff that Haz is talking about will be. So I'll leave you to move on to the next episode. So I'll see you over on episode seven, part two.